Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. You know, there is something about a tangle of strangers pressed together for days with nothing in common but the need to go from one place to another and never see each other again. I see evil on this train. A passenger has died. 
All aboard! Another tour with the film board from the next reel on rashpixel.fm. We spoil movies, and this month we will be peeling away at the onion of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. Did I mention that we spoil movies? Because this is a mystery, and we're going to spoil it. If you listen to the end of this podcast, you will know who the murderer is. Although, it was originally published in 1933. That's the book. So, so many folks out there in the world are already spoiled for this one before they buy the ticket. You may be one of those types of people, but if not, we're going to bring you there today on a train. Let's introduce our hosts. Tonight, the last time that we three thugs were together, we discussed another book adaptation in Stephen King's The Dark Tower, and we started out by describing our history with the source material for some context. And while I'm not trying to be redundant with this show again, but I think it's super important, we attack this in the same way. So, for each of our hosts, how much do you love Agatha Christie, that is, Andy Nelson? Hey there. Um, You know, it's funny. I think I've only read one Agatha Christie novel, and it was Ten Little Indians, which uh, we read in junior high in uh, my English class. That's the only one that I've read. I've seen a few of the adaptations, um, and I actually only recently saw, like in the last few months, uh, the uh, 1974 Murder on the Orient Express. Um, But weirdly, when I was watching it and the ending hit, I realized... um, Wow. Oh, this is that movie that ends this way. Like I knew the ending without knowing what movie it was or what the story was. So uh, yeah, it it was kind of spoiled without realizing the property, but uh, that's my history with it. Interesting. Tommy, do you read Agatha much? Uh, no, not at all. Actually, I've only read 10 Little Indians, which I was about to call 12 Little Indians before Andy went. So you clearly <laughs> I am not that familiar uh, with the material. All I knew about this was it was a locked murder mystery, a locked room murder mystery that took place on a train. That was it. I think that was the Soderbergh sequel, wasn't it? 12 Little Indians. Right. Well, <laughs> yes, <laughs> of course. Well, actually, and you guys know that they did rename the book because of its uh, politically incorrect, insensitive name. It's now called And Then They Were None. And it is one of my cherished books from my childhood. Uh, it, it, you know, I know, Tommy, you've talked to in the past about having a sick book, one that you go back to when you're sick. Mm-hmm. I would say, and then there were none slash 10 Little Indians is as close as you can get to that for me. I love that book. And it, for as a mystery, it's for me, probably in terms of literature, one of my top three. So I think it's interesting that all of us have listed that as our Agatha Christie exposure. That being said, I knew nothing about Murder on the Orange Express. So I think, Andy, it sounds like you're pulling the most weight as far as the pre-spoiled version of this show. So it's going to be interesting for us to figure out how much being spoiled matters as we spoil everything for the listeners out there. And guys, I want to talk about today, November 11th. That's when we're recording this. It's the Next Reel's sixth anniversary. Oh, happy birthday! So we want to tell everybody that there, 11-11, kind of a special day, right? It was actually 11-11-11. Whoa! Never forget. The day we started. That is charmed. This show uh, that we're recording right now, this film board is going to be the 421st episode, and it will push us beyond 500 straight hours of total movie podcasting. So Pete and Andy, you started some great things out there and it's good that you're here, Andy, because if, if you, if you weren't, (laughs) you wouldn't have that legacy voice to bring us through on this sixth birthday. So happy birthday to you. Pretty exciting stuff. And uh, here's to uh, the next uh, six and beyond. Everyone out there listening, you can find out more about this show and its sibling shows at thenextreel.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at The Next Reel to find out about all the fun shows we're pushing out to the podcast verse. Let's get started with the new 
Murder on the Orient Express. Ah! Initial thoughts. Andy, what did you think of the movie? It was it was a fun one. I, I thought that Kenneth Branagh did a pretty good job with this story. I, I think what uh, why people are drawn to this um, as a, a particularly interesting Agatha Christie uh, story to tell is because it probably is asking a lot more questions about you know the 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 ethics of right and wrong and just all of that. Um, uh, uh, which you're not necessarily getting in some of the other uh, mystery stories, which are just really kind of straight up whodunits. At least that's my impression of them. Um, this one has a lot of other stuff going on. And so I think that's a really interesting thing about this story. That being said, I, I, I think that while there are some some definite requirements you have for good mysteries, you know, a lot of red herrings, a lot of interesting characters with motives, maybe some interesting alibis, um, and a satisfactory resolution that does kind of connect everything and helps everything all of a sudden make sense, which on, on a multiple viewings, you can really start pinpointing all those different things. I think for the most part, it works here. I think there are elements that I struggled with, um, particularly through a lot of the, uh, uh, the second act investigation, um, which I, I didn't feel was as concise as it could have been. Um, that being said, when I got to that final reveal and the resolution, I felt very satisfied. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, I, I think some people could probably argue, argue that that's kind of the main thing about this movie. That's maybe the thing that makes this landmark while everything else is really a foundational mystery. How about you, Tommy? What did you think? I was uh, extremely disappointed in the movie. I was really excited with the idea of a locked room mystery. Uh, the thing I like about mysteries is not that I can figure them out before they're done. I'm not uh, ever smart enough to do that, but that I'm given the chance to at least feel that I could have or put things together. And I actually think that this is a really problematic story now that I've seen it. I haven't read the book, obviously, uh, but now that I've seen it, this seems like a very problematic mystery to feel, at least for me, satisfactory because it is so drenched in an off-screen family and series of events that there's very little that you can put together on your own because the reveals happen to be who knows who in this family that we only meet in a couple weird flashbacks. Uh, as a result, I found it personally very dulling. I wasn't bored, but I was confused. I didn't think that the characters were anything special, and I was pretty frustrated the entire time. Oh, wow. Okay, that's interesting. So now, Andy, knowing what you knew about the story going in, do you think, and especially because you're the only one that's seen the 1974 version, was most of the exposition of the sort of solving the mystery done in flashback or uh, sort of off screen like Tommy's talking about in that film as well? No, not necessarily. But what that film did, which I think this one really struggled with, because I, and I feel like my struggle with that whole investigation portion is because it just leaves stuff so unclear. Like Tommy said, it's it's a lot more muddled than it really should have been. And the 74 version begins with like newspapers, like you're getting the entire Armstrong story and you're getting all the different characters. You're not seeing them, but you know that, you know, there was a driver and there was a, a cook and there was a governess. Like there were these various people that were um, somehow involved in that particular Armstrong story. And you don't know that those people are these people that we now are with in the train until we get to the end, but we have a context and that's what, where this film really lacked because the context they gave us for the Armstrong case was really weak. And you really, 
there's really no way to piece anything together in this one, I didn't think. So that makes sense now thinking about it. Now, the movie didn't hit me as disappointing as you mentioned, Tommy, but I didn't didn't notice that. I think I was giving it a whole lot of uh, luxury about the fact of this really amazing cast, the really sort of the the pretty pictures that I was seeing on screen and really kind of like chugging along with Poirot's story, which is what this movie was. But I think now thinking about what you're saying about how really the solving of the mystery or the, or the actual, the sort of Sherlocking of the mystery was done off screen. And then I think to scenes about the, the him really pressing Marquez, for example, about, did you used to be a driver? You used to be a driver, right? You're a driver. That made no sense in the context of this film, but in the way that Andy's describing the 1974 version, that actually makes sense because you had this cast of characters that was part of the story that you were, that Poirot was leading into. So now it seems like he's just kind of uh, poking at things that don't seem to have any relevance, no context, except for what's off screen. So I think that's a really good point, Tom. The establishing of what Andy's talking about makes sense. Instead, they Hollywooded it and tried to give us a Poirot. Let me do that once. Poirot? Yep, that's right. Good enough. I'm not even going to try his first name. Poirot, a (laughs) sort of save the cat uh, at the Wailing Wall. In this this kind of clever, bizarre, doesn't really make that much sense way to solve a mystery. It was trying to make us like him and show him that he's world-renowned and loved and is this big, famous person. Whereas ideally, and I'm not trying to rewrite the book, obviously, but if it had started with the investigation of the Armstrongs, it would have set this up instead of them going and treating it like a big reveal. It's about the Armstrong case. Right. I already have 12 people and I don't even know who these 12 people are. And now we have this whole other family. It was just very, that's where it felt like those bad Scooby-Doo mysteries where usually it was the caretaker, but every once in a while Scooby-Doo would be like, oh, it's Dave, the guy we never met. That's what (laughs) this felt like. Just someone that they were like, oh, no, it was Steve the entire time. You didn't know who Steve was? Well, that's because we didn't tell you about him. Gotta go. Let's tell you about him now. Right. Let's tell you about him now in real time and pretend and film it in a way that it's as if we're all making the same conclusions together. And instead, I'm just watching one person who knows all the information make information, make conclusions based on information I don't have. That's what I kind of meant by numbing. I was just watching someone figure things out that I never could have. What I will say that I did like about the open um, in this particular film, despite the fact that I, I completely agree with you as far as uh, you know what they're what it's not allowing this story to do. What I do like is it's giving us a sense of how successful uh, Poirot is at at solving mysteries and and just yeah. like he is a real mystery solver. I think perhaps in the 70s they might not needed to have done that because my recollection is that was a period in time where there were more um Agatha Christie adaptations being made. So there were like I think Albert Finney actually had starred as Poirot in some other um films. And so I think the reputation had already people him. people had seen right. him as the successful detective. You didn't need to kind of set that up. Whereas in 2017, I don't think people are you know going back and cracking at Christie novels, uh, or certainly not watching the adaptations. Going, oh, that Poirot, he's such a great detective. Right? No, it's a good point. I understand. I understand why they did it, and I guess that's why I brought up that maybe at its heart, for me, this material seems like it was always going to be a little bit. Uh, unsatisfactory for me yeah, because it is so drenched in a backstory, an off-screen backstory. 
And I think maybe, you know, it could be the way they told the story here. I mean, it, it really feels like it's a movie about Poirot, not a movie about this case, which I think the book, you know, I, I don't know because I haven't read the book and it sounds like none of us have read this, but this book actually is uh, listed in Goodreads as Hercule Poirot number 10 of hers, right? So this is, she was writing him as he approached all these different cases. And that's, that's kind of what they give us, right? They give us that front end story about Jerusalem. And then he's trying to go on holiday. He gets pulled towards into this one. And as he leaves, that's, that's how we end this story is he's, he's solved this case and he's dealt with his conscience with it. And he gets immediately pulled off to another case. And so it's kind of the, the story of Poirot. And I think that maybe if you do love Agatha Christie, or if you're, if you're into that, you realize that the way maybe Kenneth Branagh was making this movie about Poirot as opposed to Murder on the Orient Express, this case where it would have needed to be told differently in the way that it was in 74, where you actually spend the time with the case here. But definitely the focus of this story was on the people making the movie um, as opposed to the story of how to reveal it to us. At at least that's the way I felt there. Um, Did it feel like I guess Andy's the only one that can really tell us this. Did it feel like the script differed significantly in the two novels uh, or in the two uh, screenplays? And from what I've seen, it's, it's very different from what was actually in the book in terms of if frame of reference, for example, my recollection of the, of the 74 story is uh, for the most part, I mean, the, the, the investigation, everything kind of is the same. It's it's not that different. I felt like they really kind of tried to tack on some some elements to make it feel a lot more cinematic, like take us out of the train, for God's sakes. Um, you know, like the whole chase of Josh Gad uh, down the uh, the different levels of the bridge, like that whole thing just seemed, you know, absurdly uh, tacked on to me. Yeah. 40 minutes in, we got to have some running around. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, plus the avalanche that hits it. I mean, it just seemed like that was seemed a little too big to kind of take on the train. I mean, in the in the other version, it's just you know, snow had there had been an avalanche that covered the tracks, and the the train just had to stop and sit there while they waited for people to come clean it. It wasn't something that nearly swept them out. Far more believable in the old other version. <laughs> yeah. And I don't recall actually in the '74 version if um, uh, the doctor starts shooting at. Poirot. Like, I, I, I don't well, think that happened, but well, I, that's a change. So the yeah. doctor wasn't a doctor in the 74 version, nor was it, nor was he a doctor in the book. He was actually an army person. The doctor, right. that is a blending of two characters um, for this version, which I think is really interesting too. There um, were more the, characters originally? Well, it, there's so many characters yeah, in this movie. I mean, there was a doctor on the train, but the this character was the Abutnot, I guess is how you say Arbuthnot, that. Yeah, he was the Arbuthnot. colonel. In the- he was a colonel, and so he was more directly connected to the Armstrong case in Got the it. earlier version of the story. So yeah, I think that, that that's interesting. I, 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 the, the story, I mean, maybe the way that it was told is, is really what has affected us here. Now I, I, I'm actually being swayed a little bit by, by your descriptions of the way things are done here, because I was pretty, I approached it with pretty simple eyes. Uh, it was, it was fairly entertaining. It wasn't, it wasn't a great movie to me, but it was, again, it felt like a showpiece for the people assembled in this cast and for the way they shot the movie. And that felt like it might have been Prana's choice. Did you guys feel like it was a sort of luxury vehicle for him at all? Just just like an actor's, like an actor's film? Yes, definitely. Well, an actor's film and, and specifically, you know, 
if if Brana is bringing this to the screen and he is making it far more about Poirot than about the case, for example, if that's if that's the differentiator that we're talking about here, is that a decision that you make as a director? That you bring to the story. I, I my recollection of Albert Finney as Poirot um, is that he was as big and over the top as Brana was here. I, I felt it. like it's you know it, that's the character, um, and I was wrong. Al- Albert Finney only played um, him once. I think I was thinking of Peter Ustinov, who played him like ten times. Got it. it. I mean, it is an actor's story, though. I, I felt like he cast it really well. I thought the cast was. Uh, I thought everybody did their parts really well. I really enjoyed all of them and uh, even the the smaller bits. Uh, but I, I think that, um, uh, you know, they moved things around in ways where uh, like in the in the 74 version, it was uh, Ingrid Bergman who played the um, lady from the convent and uh, she won an Oscar, best supporting Oscar for her role, which wow. I didn't mm. think was necessarily that great of a performance, but I guess other people did at the time. And in this particular case, like I certainly didn't think Penelope Cruz did anything special here. No. Um, uh, if any, if I was going to single any of them out, I would say Michelle Pfeiffer is the one I would single out. Yeah. Well, and again, it, looking at the cast for both films, it, it looks like it's almost a vehicle for for actors altogether. So oh, I'm absolutely. glad that you have the sort of context to say that Finney was that big as as well. Then maybe it really is the sort of uh, more of the issue of where we are in time and how it relates to the original source material. Maybe we needed to have this explained in more deeply for Poirot because we don't have Joe public does not have context for Agatha Christie in the way that they might've in the, in the seventies. And also I think they needed to give us a human. I mean, one of the big differences, as I understand it from the book from Scott and the movie is Poirot is never a tortured figure. His interminable talks to the uh, picture of his, I don't know, late wife, late girlfriend, whoever lady Kate was Catherine, Catherine, Catherine. Yeah. Um, was just him I'm talking to himself. Of a Emma Thompson, by the way, in this movie, which is interesting because they used really? to be. Was it really? Yeah. Oh, from Peter's friend. That's um, crazy. Easter egg. That's interesting. Huh. Um, was trying to give it a pulse because unfortunately, one of the other things is this movie is filled with a bunch of unlikable people. And you mean po- the characters? Po- the character. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I want to go next <laughs> step by step. Penelope Cruz, don't care. <laughs> Daisy Ridley, pass. <laughs> No, I mean, <laughs> the characters, we learn incredibly little about them. Right. Um, that's also a problem that I have we can get into at some point, like going into the movie, how it begins and how we feel as it goes forward. But it's also, it's a bunch of unlikable people. And Poirot, as I understand, at most is kind of a brilliant, persnickety antihero, kind of like Sherlock Holmes. He's not likable. Right. He's the smartest person in the room. He knows he's the smartest person in the room. And he has a little bit of OCD. And stuff. So to give him self the he really Kenneth really kind of changed Poirot into a little bit more of a Mary Sue character in making himself the smartest and the most feeling and the most um not godlike, but the person that is definitely cares the most about morals and is so tortured by it and has a talk with his late wife's photograph about how can I do this and I'm stuck and all these. It makes sense. I don't like it. It didn't help me, but it did. It makes sense that it gives the film at least a beating heart because everyone else really doesn't have that much time. 
There's just well, so now we've all read Ten Little Indians, and and one of the interesting things about how it differs here is that uh, um, we talk about how each of those characters doesn't necessarily have feeling, like you're saying, but and now we start getting into the spoilers of the story. Each of them is playing a role to some degree. Each of their characters is lying to some degree as well. So that is maybe an essential point in telling the story too, to give Poirot a heart because specifically no one is going to have a heart on this train. It's, and it's just a, I think it's just a challenge when you have so many characters um, to really flesh them out. And honestly, that's my recollection of uh, the, the Agatha Christie um, films I've seen and of the book is that these are not necessarily designed as, you know, stories with fully fleshed out characters. I mean, they might be interesting characters in context of the story, but they're not necessarily characters that I can say, wow, I, I really understand that character. I felt the the arc of them over the course of the story. They all right. fit in her little puzzles, uh, you know, to solve these mysteries. And I think that's, yeah, I mean, if you look at the size of her books, they're really short. <laughs> I think it's basically, this is the mystery. These are the characters. Boom. Right. So you think about a movie that did that well, and you, what about Clue the movie? Right. Where I don't think anyone would argue that, you know, we didn't really know those characters, but it was the same kind of thing. And yet it it's a wonderful cult classic, isn't it? Yeah, I would argue that we probably don't know those characters any more than we know these characters. It's just that they're right. they're awfully fun and silly. They're more fun. Yeah. They're stronger types. They're pushed yeah. farther into their one lane kind of a thing. And I believe there are a lot fewer. There's just too many people. For this, and again, this is me complaining about the trying to make this into a movie and what's going against it. Because I know that when that train takes off in the beginning of one of many, for me, dodgy special effects shots, I never believe that that train ever really existed. <laughs> that when they're taking off, that's the Titanic moment of we've met sure. everyone and the Titanic is, and the music is swelling. And that was one of the first times I was like, oh, no, I'm not where the film thinks I'm supposed to be. I know right. almost no one. I don't I care. I caught about up it. with anything yet. Yeah. I do not care about anyone having Poirot do a wailing wall, trip someone with his cane, which I liked. I thought that was delightful. But then having a child seemingly in reshoots over smile at him, <laughs> yeah. like trying to cute up this inscrutable, not pleasant character. I was like, this is not the, I don't feel like I'm supposed to, I'm where I'm supposed to be. And it never really got better interesting at the end of the movie after the reveal the the uh final supper of everyone spread out at the table and you find out was you're listening to i believe poirot give voiceover to his late wife girlfriend i still don't know who that was and it's a follow shot it's a tracking shot behind him going through all the cars of the train and then leading finally ending with everyone in that final car and I loved that shot. And I realized, oh, that's what was missing is he didn't set the table very well. Kenneth Branagh, I mean, in that when we see the, the length of the train and stuff, it's that interminable and I thought not good looking tracking shot from outside the train. Right. With, with them, with Michelle Pfeiffer in weirdly dubbed language, um, talking to him in a not convincing way. And you're seeing some of the people sort of forlornly or mysteriously looking out of the window. I couldn't understand. That's what you want. If you're going to have a locked room mystery, you start by showing the locked room, the locked room, you show yeah. you, you do a tracking shot behind the person and show everything of what the, here is where we're going to be. 
in these six cars, in these four cars, whatever it is. And that's when the train took off and left. I was like, that's what was missing. Like, in, I, I don't know why I keep going to Titanic, but it seems a little bit like we, we, we have eight people. We got to meet them really fast, give them all little personalities, and then we're off. That's kind of what Titanic is too. Titanic had huge tracking shots through the different rooms. Right. Through all these things, finding out where we're going to be. That seemed like such a misstep to me that I never really understood where everything was in, com- in connection with where everyone was, whose compartment was next to whose. And that's a real big problem for me. That also had a really awkward audio cut that that kind of bugged me. I mean, I could see why they did it, but it it bugged me all the same. When you're tracking outside the train of him and Michelle Pfeiffer talking, um, and you hear all of the the sounds of the station and everything, and then at that point where you do cut in all of a sudden into their conversation as as it cuts to I think his face as he's replying to her or something like that, the sound totally changes. You lose everything outside of it. And it's just like, all of a sudden it's like, wham, you're, you're in the train now. It's like, ah, that was a really abrupt way to thrust us into it. So, right. And it seemed like a choice that was done more for the glory of showing that tracking shot, which in general doesn't feel like it has a lot of purpose. Now I think that potentially it could be just a misstep, Tommy, in that what you're talking about instead uh, that they may have chosen to represent the locked room from the outside. So us looking for, as audience members looking in at all these people who are held here, which I think is a misstep because I think what you're describing sounds far more effective of putting us in the situation with them and having us experience that locked room. But it, it during the moment, I didn't even feel that it was that thoughtful. It felt like it was more like, let's just show this cool tracking motion control shot outside the, outside the train. And it kind of failed in that we didn't really get to see much. And we just heard that voiceover until that abrupt audio cut that you're talking about, Andy. So I think um, in general, most of the motion control stuff, I liked the way it looked, but outside of that, it didn't feel like it was purposeful for what they were trying to accomplish in the film. It was weird. It felt like a show off shot that both didn't show off because I didn't think it looked great. It was obviously a sound problem. Even past what Andy said towards the end, there was garbledy stuff going on with um, Michelle Pfeiffer. You could tell that it had been redubbed. And yeah, it was a show off shot that actually did the exact opposite. Brana shot this in 65 millimeter. And I know like they put a lot of work into that last tracking shot through the train, which as I understood it actually continued through his whole speech out the train. And then the cameraman got into a lift as it kind of went up and looked at the train as it took off and he walked over to the car. Oh, like I think was it was actually shot? the full thing that they ended up cutting into. Oh, they did uh, cut into it. Did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, they, did they did cut into here. it quite a bit. But I wonder if they put all their eggs in the basket of, of putting that shot together. And uh, because of the complexities of doing that sort of stuff with 65 millimeter cameras, they opted to not do it earlier in the film, which seems a little you know, backward to me. Yeah, it seems cart before the horse a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I don't actually know what that phrase means, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a horse No, guy. I think... <laughs> Well, and that's, I mean, if we look at how the film was shot altogether, it was, it was very pretty. I didn't notice the, the, the joyful things that I've from the last 65 slash 70 millimeter shot film that I saw, which is hateful eight, um, where I was just impressed throughout with the different things they did and the way that they made that look. This had moments of that for me, but like you're describing there, Andy, I had no idea that was the way that that was shot because of the fact that they cut into it. So it seemed uh, less than special to me. It seemed sort of standard to me. 
Um, you know, and maybe they just need to hire a different motion control one or cameraman, but, um, that's, you know, for our listeners, what, what kind of things does shooting on 65 millimeter give you? Uh, it gives you, um, big releases, um, if you have the right theaters. I mean, here in the States, it's only playing in LA and New York in, um, in the 65 millimeter format. Um, it, you know, it's, it's just a big, beautiful print. I mean, you, you're just getting, a giant like, print. Okay, yeah, you're yeah. getting four times as much, uh, image in each frame. So it just makes for really lush images. And I can see with some of the lushness, cause it certainly was a very lush film and there's a lot of beautiful stuff to look at. I can see, um, why perhaps they chose to look at, uh, or to film it this way, though, maybe not as it doesn't make as much sense as like when he made Hamlet back in the mid nineties. Um, cause this is just kind of like it, it, much like Tarantino. It's like, why, why are you doing it with this format in something that is just like an enclosed space for the duration of the film? You know, right. I, in both cases, it, it, it's a little perplexing. <laughs> um, but still, I, I, I think it, it does make a much more beautiful image, but it really, it's like, it's hard to find places that show that more, uh, these days. So it's, it's also frustrating that they do that. I think with Dun- Dunkirk was the last, uh, I mean, it was uh, rare, I think, nowadays to get two films. Um, at, well, Dunkirk wasn't completely 65 millimeter, but I know some of it was. And it's uh, interesting to have two films in a year that have some of that uh, 65 millimeter footage shot. So there are only certain, so you, what you're saying is there are only certain theaters where you can actually see it in its full glory. Exactly. Gotcha. So potentially what we saw is, is, oh, is limited. Absolutely. I mean, cause it's only LA and New York in the United States. Interesting. Yeah. Tommy, where did you see it in LA? Uh, Sherman Oaks uh, at a, at a nice theater, but they didn't, if usually they would brag about things life. like, like, oh, yeah, I saw it yep. at the Arclight, but it was showing at a couple different theaters. And usually they like to brag about things like Atmos or if it's an, on a different type of film. And it was not. I mean, it was not bragged about, so I'm not sure. In L.A., it's at the Arrow Cinema in Santa Monica. Nope. And the Arclight Hollywood. Neither me. Okay. Yeah. So, no, I did not see it on 65 millimeter. So, I wonder what would really – see, I think that you make a good point there, Andy, and that the majority of this film is shot in this – closed environment. I mean, literally this is like the smallest train that I've ever seen. Um, so I wonder what things were really missing out on by not seeing it in that way. Especially because it looked to me like a lot of the, um, uh, seemingly repetitive shots coming over the mountaintop to reveal the train on the other side, uh, sorts of shots were, uh, I, 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 I know they shot some in, in Switzerland and stuff like that, but obviously there's a lot of CG elements thrown in there. How did you guys, I brought up that I had thought that a lot of the CG was pretty dodgy, uh, that I didn't believe in it. It felt like it needed, they didn't spend the time or the money, most importantly, the money potentially on, because this film is not highly reviewed. When you say highly reviewed, do you mean uh, critically acclaimed? Critically acclaimed, yes. Um, sure. Yeah, it's a um, 53 right now on Rotten Tomatoes, and I actually, after seeing it, thought it would be lower. Than- that sometimes, uh, because there's so many advanced screenings that you do, especially with a prestige piece, sometimes when a movie like that has these grandiose shots that don't look good CG-wise, that's a studio hedging some of their bets, making it looking good enough, making... Uh, saying whenever we can get out of the train, let's do it and have it sweeping, but not doing that final finish and just having it look a little bit more like the Polar Express right? than the Orient well, Express. I think it's interesting that you brought up Titanic because it reminded me a lot of that, like where we actually are seeing 
a model mixed with CGI and a potential, you know, like a, a green screen background. We can um, do all this much better now. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. So if, if they're willing to pony up the money. Yeah. Right. The, the stuff where we saw tracking motion control shots external to the train with that were clearly uh, on a sort of green screen set with this model. Um, that was really rough to me. It, it reminded me of the stuff we saw in Titanic that was amazing then, but is not so amazing anymore. Yeah. Agreed. No, I was, I never really believed that the train was there. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I know they shot some of it, um, with a real train, but I, I, for me, I felt like it was really just the blending of things where it just didn't, it ended up just feeling not quite as effective as it should have been. Agreed. So, I guess I didn't mean to say that the train didn't exist, but the train didn't exist in where it was in the space. Whenever yeah, it was hundred percent true. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Definitely noticeable in that. Yeah. And I was let down by the op by the lack of opulence in the train. Everyone was acting like a rich jerk as if the train was like the <laughs> nicest thing in the world. It seemed very cramped. And Kenneth Branagh actually made, or as JJ says, Branagh, uh, made some interesting <laughs> choices of actually seeming to be a stickler for um, restricting his filmmaking to the uh, physics and space of the train. So for me personally, some interminable long shot from God's eye view down where you get very little detail, so many vertical, and you would do that. I would think that, I mean, one way is to be fancy. One way is to be artsy, but also that if you don't want to break out that fake wall, right. You know, you don't have to do that, but he wanted to do that. And I thought that that didn't help. And there was, there was a great, <laughs> just real quick, because it's about one of these shot from top looking down shots. It's in the, it's, it's a finest hour. My finest hours uh, award for worst ADR is when they find Johnny Depp's <laughs> find Johnny Depp's body. The entire scene is played looking down. So you can't ever see Perot or his sidekicks mouths. So they're talking and they're talking and they're talking and they're finding clues and stuff. And he goes, and at one point he goes, and what's this? A pipe cleaner. And his sidekick goes, right. another clue. Right. <laughs> that was great. I would love for real detectives to be like, hold on, another clue. That's great. <laughs> it's fantastic. Clear, like my guess is that studio people were like, we can't see their faces for this entire shot, then keep the dialogue rat-a-tat-tat. Yeah. Like keep, you know what I mean? We can't have you slow play this. So, and their answer was to have someone say another clue. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I, right. I wonder how much of that actually did end up coming from them after the fact or how much of it came from Michael Green writing the book or writing the, the adaptation. Because I will say as a screenwriter, like he's done stuff, worked on stuff like Logan, but then, and Blade Runner 2049, but he's also worked on stuff Ooh. like Alien Covenant. Ooh. And so, and Green Lantern. So it's like, boy, he <laughs> really is, there's a real flip-flopping uh, he's all with over him. The map. And he's, it's, yeah. it's sole credit. So it makes me really wonder, um, you know, if, uh, <laughs> how much of that. Well, uh, came right. There is a book that's been written. So yeah, um, yeah much of the screenplay is going to be editing, right? At this point yeah. is is figuring out what you can keep in and what you can't. So um, it'll be interesting. It would be interesting to see what his contribution was and what sort of creative steps they took away from the, from the novel in the first place. Yeah. Um, if we talk about it, one of the things that I think is interesting, since we're still talking about camera, I think we should go in there too, is that we never actually see the inside of any of the rooms except for the big, car like you mentioned that vertical shot 
that when we see Johnny Depp's body, we never see any other perspective from that room. So when we find out things later on about how like they have a shared door with, with he has a shared door with one of the other passengers and stuff like that, that's all stuff that's just being held out to us. And we have no way to inspect, which also kind of leads us back to the fact that the way the story is being told in this way is it, we are learning it with Poirot and we are victim or slave to what he decides to sort of conclude on his own, which is a weakness in the way they tell the story. This it's way. so frustrating. You know, you know, when you set that up in that beginning tracking shot. Sure. They do a much better job in the 1974 version. I mean, obviously they didn't have the, the camera tricks and all that to, to do, but they, you do get a better sense of the rooms of just, uh, you know, where people are in the rooms and everything. It just made the space feel a lot more logical, like in our heads, where it's like, okay, I understand the doors between the rooms. I think they even like, she actually shut her door. There's an emphasis of that whole thing. So, I mean, there's- To see that it's there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's There are all of those elements introduced earlier on. Not like I would have solved the mystery, but again, and I don't mean to keep laboring <laughs> the point, but I want the chance. Yeah, I want right. to know where I am, what's who's who, and where's where. So at least I feel like I'm a part of the conversation. When we talk about other comparisons with the 1974, I don't know that we want to compare the cast up and down because there's so many people to talk about in this. But let me just, I'm going to quickly run through all the names of the actors who are in this version. And then afterwards, I want you guys to pick out some of those that you thought were interesting, either positively or negatively about this, because it's such a long list of powerful people. Uh, Kenneth, you guys can pronounce his name however you want to. Uh, Johnny Depp, Michelle Pfeiffer, Penelope Cruz, we've talked about all those. Leslie Odom Jr., Daisy Ridley, Josh Gad, Derek Jacoby, Judy Dench, Lucy Boynton, Willem Dafoe, Olivia Coleman, uh, Sergei Polunin, and Marwan Kanzari. I don't know him exactly for Pierre Michel. And then also uh, there was the book character as well. Wh- which of those characters did you think was significant enough to, dis- to, to, to talk about here? Um, I think we talked a little bit about Michelle Pfeiffer before. Um, what did you guys think of her performance? I thought she was great. I mean, she played the part that Lauren Bacall had in the 74 version and they both did a great job. But I, I think Michelle Pfeiffer for me, um, I, well, they gave her, I felt like the writers this time gave her a little more uh, meat. And so, her bits at the end, like I, I really connected with her and the story when we had the reveal of all of them coming in and, and killing uh, Ratchet, uh, you know, Cassetti. I, I really like from that point on, I really just kind of enjoyed what they were doing. And I just I really felt Michelle was great in this. Uh, and uh, she brought a lot to the table, I thought. I thought she was great too. I thought it was interesting. They shot her in a way that made her look old through most of the film until the reveal. And then they gave her a soft focus. And it was it was interesting because Oh, they did? I didn't notice yeah, that. Yeah, it's it's really because she all of a sudden became beautiful at the end in a really interesting way, which she was also just in mother. Um, and she was She's so gorgeous good in mother. Oh. In mother. So I they they must have made a choice from a makeup perspective or from a lighting perspective to to shoot her that way, which I think is interesting in terms of the story. But in general, I mean she was great in this character and and what an interesting thing that she's now the parallel to the Lauren Bacall character in seventy four. I think that's I think I, I wonder if these actors when they signed on, if they thought about legacy when they mm-hmm. were connecting with these original actors. I think there's always something to that when you're reprising a role. Um, but I also think actors, you know, they have to get themselves out of that headspace. Um, sure. Because they don't want that to, you know, feel they don't want to feel like they're informing, that's informing them or anything. Exactly. They want to make their own mark. 
Gotcha. Who else did you find interesting in their role? I, I thought Josh Gad was great. I was really happy to see him in this kind of role. Yeah, he was great. And uh, Anthony Perkins uh, was the role in the 74 version. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I really enjoyed Anthony Perkins in that one. Uh, it was kind of fun seeing him. But uh, Josh Gad, I just think is just an actor who's really exciting to watch. So I enjoyed him as McQueen. He got a very, he's one of the few that I think got a really meaty scene. Um, the one problem that I had was not a problem with him, but with the script is he really did seem to turn on a dime during his meaty scene. He was like, I'm never going to tell you anything. And then Perot does Perot does one smart thing. And he's like, well, here's everything <laughs> and immediately starts crying. I get it. You got to think, keep things moving along. But, uh, I thought he acted it. He acted a, at times hurriedly written role very well. It was a shame that they had to do that chase down the the scaffolding of the bridge because that was nonsense. And that's from what little I understand of Poirot, that just seems like studio pressure because yeah. Poirot is the guy that sets up his cane at the wailing wall. So he literally doesn't have to move. Right. For him to be the one chasing after, that was just silly and sad. And they're worried about being stuck in a train. Where was he going to go? He was trying to set that stuff on fire. And then he was going to catch the other train. <laughs> But I think I think Poirot was chasing after him, and so he was just trying to make sure he got to a place where he could burn the stuff before Poirot got it. Is that what it was? I don't know. It was <laughs> it's so weird. Tough. We, we you have to do work to make that work. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And that was not in there. Uh, I guess you know, in that long list of people that I put in there, the other the other person that I would mention was Willem Dafoe. I, I he didn't really have much for me there. I I love him. I love him in pretty much everything I see. But I I thought his role talk about turning on a dime. It's like, oh, and by the way, you're not Austrian, you know. And then all of a sudden, oh, okay, now we're going to just get all the exposition about who he really is. Yeah, and then uh, I, it, it, there was nothing to his character for me at all. Seeing seeing this and the Florida story. Um, like within a few weeks of each other, it just goes to show that he is an actor who just does a lot of really interesting things. And I mean, I, he's totally different here than he was in the Florida story. So I can't wait to see that. I have, I'm, I'm, it's not allowed that I live in Los Angeles and I haven't seen that because I know it's not all over the country yet, but I'm really excited to see that movie. It's definitely tough. <laughs> it's yeah. definitely unlikable characters, but. Well, it's tough because Willem Dafoe got his his I'm not Austrian speech. And then later in the final supper scene, I'm just harping too much about the script, got to give a very eloquent speech about someone that we had never met and never would when he had a whole a whole uh, monologue about I told her she could do better. But there she was with a casserole for our dates. And I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) We've never met any of the Armstrongs. Stop it. I'm very angry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And the other piece is that we don't really care about the Armstrongs. I mean, we understand that their, that their story is significant, but they never do a good job in this movie of wedding us to the motive. No, they it's, it's a motive that we learn and the why that the murder happens. But outside of that, I don't have an emotional connection to it other than the story that all these other people have. But and to be fair, I mean, even the 74 version, you don't get that. You just get these newspaper clippings of kind of like or it's like newspaper clipping slash newsreel footage type of setup of the the Armstrong baby kidnapping story. Um, so you don't really get to know them very well there either. Um, it's and I, I, maybe that's for me just kind of inevitable when it comes to Agatha Christie mysteries, because you're just not everything is just you know pieces for the plot to move along 
And I think that, you know, the characters as, as interesting as they might be, just there's not a lot to them. They just, she gives you enough. So you go, okay, so that's who that is. Got it. Yeah. And that's, that was evident too. I think the movie came in at one hour, uh, 54 minutes. No, is that right? Yeah. Just under two hours. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't know what they could have done either way. Making it longer wouldn't have necessarily made it better at this point. As far as other characters, the Countess, who turns out to be the Countess, who's Lady Barbital. Yeah, that's the Countess. That's the Countess. countess. And her dancer husband, like half the movie goes by and then they show up again. And I'm like, oh, Oh, right. Yeah, that (laughs) was on the train, too. I forgot you were even in this movie and I'm starting to really lose the plot and who's who. I guess, again, it's, I guess that a little bit of that numbing effect of they just didn't give me enough to hang on to. So I think it was well acted, underwritten, but you're right, JJ, in that overwriting it would have just made it longer. It's tough to figure out how to make these characters stick a bit more. And it, it was a nightmare, as longtime listeners will know. I'm not good at a lot of things, and one of them are proper nouns. Unless you immediately, someone says Steve and the film cuts to Steve. So a lot of time there was a lot of talk about Marquez and I did not know who Marquez was. Right. I didn't know who it was. And I was like, oh, it's probably the African-American character because everyone's already been saying bad things about African-American. And then the guy goes, or that other guy because of his skin color. And I'm like, who's (laughs) Marquez? I have no idea what's going on. That was me for a lot of the movie. That's well. That's unfortunate. And and Marquez in particular had had very little to do in this movie. He, he, I mean, how much he had a lot of screen time, but he didn't have a whole lot of roles. He was technically the salesman, right? That's how he was sold. Is that's he the car guy? Was, I'm still not even sure. Yeah, he's the car. Oh guy. yeah, the yeah. Car guy. Matthew Fox with a mustache. <laughs> I think I forgot with the to put him on this list actually in so. the conservatory. Okay, yeah. yeah, right. Nobody mentioned Kenneth. How did you think good old Kenneth did his in his role? He really loved himself. I loved him too, actually. I I thought he was so much fun <laughs> as Poirot and uh, the mustache. Like I don't know. I just I, I think he's such a, a crazy character. I think Kenneth Branagh is one of those actors that uh, you know, even when he's being an over the top Russian in Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, there's something just kind of crazy and and fun to enjoy with him. So I liked his humor in this. I actually laughed a couple times out loud particularly when he met Josh Gad and said, I'm equally disappointed in you. <laughs> that was, <laughs> Which that I thought, was a great line. That, that was, was a great line. And he, you know, whether or not he was loving himself because that's what he envisioned Poirot to do or the way that, I mean, he was delivering the lines. I just, I, I thought it was fun. And I actually thought the level of humor in this movie was, was, was kind of good. I, I was happy with it that it wasn't too over the top. And then some of the things hit me and I actually laughed. So that was kind of special for me. Yep. One of the things that I didn't like was the music. For most of the film, it was it was not bothersome. But early on, especially with the Wailing Wall scene, the, the music treated the entire Wailing Wall intro as if it were a film in and of itself. So when, uh, when Poirot has his sort of monologue and he's telling the soldier that he doesn't arrest at the beginning, uh, about his process. There's these sweeping moves about that. This is actually a climax to denouement of a movie that we didn't see. And it completely took me out of the movie. And so I had a negative feeling about the movie, the music, the whole way through. Did you guys have any feelings about Patrick Doyle stuff? Generally, I really love Patrick Doyle. I think he's an incredibly strong composer. Um, he is always working with Brana. They are, um, working with each other quite a bit and i will say i actually liked all the themes in the film i i uh i honestly i can't recall the opening so i'm i'm blanking on what you're talking about as far as the wailing wall music 
It was when they were standing up and uh, it was after the Wailing Wall and they were standing up and they were in some sort of like balcony and just giving, I don't know. Yeah, when, he, when <laughs> he's talking to the guy who's going to, supposed right. to take him to the, the ship. When he's getting the new job. Yeah, yes. I, I, just, I can't remember the, the music there. But on the whole, I, I enjoyed it. Well, good. Yeah. Then, then I, I'm probably just uh, unfortunately uh, touched incorrectly by that particular scene. Well, and I don't know. I mean, I I just like Patrick Doyle in general, and so this is one where I feel like I I like I can't pinpoint the themes. They're not stuck in my head. I just remember going, "Oh, I enjoy it quite a bit." I, but I I'm going to have to listen to it a few times to really say how well it sticks with me or not. So, thinking about how it's going to do, my theater was interestingly above average in terms of attendance i went and saw it on friday morning the early show at about 11 in the morning and there were a lot of people most of them were pretty old i will say it had a very it had a much it skewed to be an older audience ours too um, but there were a lot of people in there i was i was impressed with that yeah i i mean i live right next to uh sun city which is uh you know 55 and older community and so i uh it was all i think i, I was probably the youngest person in the theater uh, when wow. I saw it and it, but it was largely full and that was uh, an earlier show today. So um, it's, I mean, it looks like it's doing well for itself. I don't know the, the box office predictions right now are kind of torn if it or uh, daddy's home two is going to uh, <laughs> take the, take the second place <laughs> spot. No, nothing's expected to knock Thor Ragnarok out of the top spot. So sure. Um, uh, it'll be interesting to see exactly, uh, if this one is able to kind of sustain an audience. I'm not quite sure. I don't know. I just feel like I, I'm, I'm so perplexed with the 65 millimeter decision on this film because it seems like such an expensive endeavor to do with a film that doesn't necessarily have a guaranteed audience and does and doesn't need it. Yeah, exactly. Like it's not an expanse. It's the opposite of it. Like you said about Hateful Eight, it's not an expansive movie. It sounds like a director being indulgent with himself right. all over the place. Right. I get that it's like going back to that it's a pre- old prestige piece and then also the fight against digitalization and stuff, but it just seems like the exact opposite of why would you do that? Yeah, I think we'll need some more legitimate, profound choices for this kind of shooting to fight that fight the right way. And not have them be these sort of if if it's the hateful eight and if it's this you know where it doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. I don't the think it's actually of, going like to Lawrence have the of right Arabia, effect. right? That choice, yeah, yeah. Like pick one of those movies. Like do the English Patient and shoot it that way. Do something like that, you know. Um, and Please give us don't remake the English Patient. <laughs> well, no, no, I don't. But you know what I mean. Like do something where it's going to show off what it can do, as opposed to something that really doesn't need it in the first place. Yeah. Well, it makes you it makes you wonder, you know, just the smart business sense of doing it like this in the first place with movies like this, because it's like if it's not going to make its money back, it's not going to do any good for the format anyway. So if you're going to use 65 millimeter, make sure it's a, a movie that's going to you know get a lot of money back at the box office so that more people go, oh, hey, look how successful that was. I just feel like it's a strange decision to kind of for, for these film, these directors who are these film lovers who want to keep using these formats to to uh, move forward with uh, films that aren't necessarily money makers. Yeah, I haven't been able to find anywhere about the budget on this. Have you, have you guys seen any numbers for that? I thought that they read that they wanted a 20 million opener. What I'm seeing, I'm seeing 55 million 
Oh, for the okay. production budget. But the 20 million is accurate for what they've got in the first week here. They're expecting 19 million this weekend. But I think, you know, the reason why I think it's important to this part of the conversation is that I think if they take to second place, that it, they'll consider it a victory for this film. Well, and and certainly, I mean, it's it I think it already had uh its release most everywhere else. I think we were like behind, a week behind everyone. So, um, uh, you know, I Maybe it'll build uh, internationally and get more people that way. I don't know. It seems like it was being released as a prestige, like for an Oscar thing, though, for now. To release it now, it's certainly not going to be recognized as such. But, Or is it a little too early to say that? No, certainly. I mean, November. I mean, definitely. I think it's, it's the, the Oscar time. time. Yeah. And it, but it's one of those ones where, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if like the one from 74 that that did get Ingrid Bergman, Bergman an Oscar. I wouldn't be surprised if they're pushing Michelle Pfeiffer for a supporting actress nomination. Oh, you sure. Know, it's, that could be. They're definitely not doing it with Penelope Cruz. I, I can't imagine they would like, I feel like this was, they were giving it to Michelle because it seems like she's the one in this, in this cast more so than Ingrid in the previous one that stands out as the, as the big role. Yeah. That makes sense to me too. One thing that did make me laugh in the theater because it's a, it's a victim of its time, not a victim of its time, but the people, some of the people in the movie are very racist and some are pretending to be racist. Some actually are racist. And when Poirot gives his starts to give his big speech at the end after the last supper scene when he's going to decide what he's going to tell the police and he comes out to everyone and he says well everyone i have made my decision and after thinking about everything the police have decided to go with my version the black fella did it <laughs> bye <laughs> and then he just runs off the train and just runs away <laughs> <laughs> I thought that would be funny. <laughs> uh, well, and you know, there weren't any people of color in the original version of this, right? right. Not in the 74 version and not in the original publishing of it either, the right. 1933. But there's, so there's so much that... Semitism and uh, the color of skin stuff. <laughs> so I liked it if he would have just taken the easy way out and been like, <laughs> all right. And I we know what the police are going to believe. <laughs> Well, you got to wonder if the Semitism was in the original version, right? From 1933. Is that part of it too? I, I know that NPR, so I read NPR's review of the movie and they called it out for a lot of forced diversity casting and yeah. storytelling, which I think is interesting. I might be mixing her up with a different author and I apologize if I am, but I don't know if kind of like Edgar Allan Poe, that some of early Agatha Christie stuff doesn't translate that well. If you know in what terms I mean. of politically correctness, politically correctness in today's yeah. thing. So, but I'm not sure about that. So that was, it's fun. definitely a possibility. I know that, that a lot of the reviews of this film are coming out that way, saying that they've changed it in ways that they're trying to accommodate that politically correct mindset. And some of it looks forced in the way sure. that they did. So your, your, your thought and your joke there uh, may be uh, seemingly appropriate based on the changes that they're trying to make. Well, just reading about her in, uh, on Wikipedia, it says, Christy occasionally inserted stereotyped descriptions of characters into her work, particularly before the end of the Second World War, when such attitudes were more commonly expressed publicly, and particularly in regard to Italians, Jews, non-Europeans, and sometimes Americans, the last usually as impossibly naive or uninformed. So it's, it does sound like it's something that uh, she was yeah. guilty of. 
Fair enough. Well, I think now is the time that we're going to rank it. All aboard the murder train! Flick chart. (laughs) If you folks out there in the world haven't done so yet, check out www.flickchart.com. It provides a fun way to look at the movies that you love and some of the ones that you hate, too. By creating a tournament-style stack ranking system, we go through the exercise here on every show of ours, and you can find our special stack rankings for the movies we've seen on this show at flickchart.com slash TNR film board. So where do we start our fight for the murder train? Uh, we're going to kick it off. Murder on the Orient Express or side effects? Side, side effects. Yeah, I'll say side effects. Murder on the Orient like Express. Most of us always say side effects. Side effects is a weird soft spot for all of us. It's it, no, it's Soderberg. an odd Soderbergh one. Yeah, but it's it's one that I sticks know. though. Yeah. Think, so it's interesting. Uh, next up, we have Murder on the Orient Express or the Equalizer. The Equalizer. Uh, I, liked I, it. I have to. Uh, oh, can I not abstain? Because there's three of us. You can go you ahead. Can abstain. I, I have to. I, then I have to abstain. I've seen the movie, but I wasn't a part of the review. Oh wait, how does abstaining work? Oh, that doesn't matter as long as you've seen it. Oh, the equal. Uh, I'm going to say uh, Murder on the Orient and Express. I'll take Poirot any day. <laughs> so you guys are on equal sides. No, we're opposites. You're a tie. I mean, we're a tie. Yes, we're a tie. Then I abstain. <laughs> oh, what? you? No, you can't if you've seen it. Oh, okay. Uh, I think I think the Equalizer. Thank you. All right, Murder on the Orient Express or Insurgent. I will say Murder, murder on, on the Orient Express. Express. Uh, which one was Insurgent? The first one. <laughs> the second one. Oh the yeah, uh, Murder. Murder on the Orient Express or the Wolverine. Ooh, Ugh. Wolverine has two good sequences. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to definitely murder on the Orient Express. I'm going to say murder, too. I'm going to say Wolverine. Throw away my vote. <laughs> we did. Murder on the Orient Express or War Dogs. Oh, so disappointed at that oh. one. I'll say murder. I'm going to say murder. Murder on the say, Orient Express. I'm going to say War Dogs. Okay. Are you, are you throwing it away or is that serious? No, it's for, it's it's for true. It's for true, true. Yeah. It's for true, true. All right. Murder <laughs> on the Orient Express or Everest. Oh, abstain. Yuck. Uh, murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, I'll say murder on the Orient Express. Also, cowards! I want a Rosham. Oh. <laughs> I can't stand the Rosham. All right. Well, that puts it at forty-nine. Forty-nine out of sixty-four. Not a super high right. on our chart, uh, but not super low either. It's uh, it's kind of at about that seventy-fifth percentile or so. Yeah. For me, it's a like. I mean, generally the 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 films there that I was voting it over are the ones that were no like for me, uh, and and I and I felt fine about this movie. I think Tommy's opinion totally I agree with. It just didn't I didn't didn't make me hate it as much as he did. Yeah, uh, I'm a no like. I think it's a I think it's a poorly it's an unsatisfactory experience with a great twist. Oh, by the way, everyone, they all did it. I don't, we never, we never actually came out and said wow. that, right? Here's the spoiler. We're, we're, we we're, we're, we're the podcast that spoiled. That's the first time that we've actually waited that long. They all did it, and half of it doesn't make sense. And Most of it doesn't make sense. Yeah, and why would they wait? And oh, I'll, I'll save that for maybe the end. No, and there's I'll a do clue it right for now. Literally every single one of them in the room. Yeah, yeah it's ridiculous. why would they bother putting the kimono in Poirot's suitcase? Were they trying to frame Perot? They should throw it. If they were trying to do the lone assassin thing, why would they hide it in the train? Yeah. It doesn't hold up. <laughs> no like. No like. So what, what was your star rating out of five, though, Tommy? Oh, I'm two and a half. Oh, JJ, I'm two right and a half and a like? Okay. And Tommy, what was your star rating? Uh, two. Two with no like? I am at a three and uh, and a like. It's It's, you know, I have problems with it, but it's a story that I think is going to be easy to watch. And I think... 
knowing more of the story, I think I, I, I maybe am being more forgiving because I can fill in the gaps with it. Sure. I think that makes, that could make a really big difference. Yeah, it, yeah, definitely can. So overall, that's about two and a half and a like. So there you go. And a couple likes. There we go. So where do we go from here? Next month, the film board is back into the Star Wars universe with The Last Jedi. Did you guys already buy tickets? Are you doing the Fandango thing for that? I'll buy tickets uh, You know, the day before I go see it. <laughs> the Star Wars movie, Last Jedi. Uh, Pete, I, I'm probably going to see it with Pete. And uh, we have, are already checking our theater, making sure that we can get tickets. It's family family adventure for us. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're looking at that. My problem is, is there are too many Christmas parties happening. Like right around that right. time. And it's like, I can't pick a night right now because I don't know when I can go. So I think the, uh, the Force Awakens came out like two weeks or a week or two later than this one, you know, la- two years ago. So I think it's interesting that this is coming out on the week of the 15th. I think it now, actually was so. the same week. Now, since you say that, because I, I, I dealt with the same thing. I had Christmas party issues then also. Oh, maybe it's possible. I don't. Yeah. I, don't I, I probably don't remember that either. Uh, Andy, for the weekly show, what what's the series that you guys are working on right we now? We are uh, right in the middle of our Ricardo Darín series, uh, Argentine actor. Uh, we've done his first uh, or two of the, our two films that we've talked about so far: Nine Queens and Son of the Bride. And next week, we are going to be jumping into uh, the uh, the Oscar winner for best foreign language film of two thousand nine, The Secret in Their Eyes. So, very much looking forward to that one. I've been reading the stuff you guys have been talking about with him. I think I really need to see some of those movies. They sound fantastic. There hasn't been a bad one yet. They are all fantastic. Behind the scenes question, how do you and Pete choose your runs of movies? We have a huge list of things that we're like, oh, this would be fun to talk about one day. Oh, that would be fun to talk about one day. And this is one where we- have this database. That's great. Yeah. And this is one where we happened to- uh, At one point, we went to our listeners and said, hey, what are you guys interested in us talking about? And uh, somebody in Spain actually is just like, you guys should talk about Argentine actor Ricardo Darín. And we wrote it down and neither of us knew who he was, but we ended up looking him up. And this was several years after the recommendation. And we're like, oh, this looks like an interesting guy. And so, yeah, so that's how we ended up with that series. But uh, we're very happy because we've been really enjoying it. I love it. Listener participation. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. That's a big thing. Interactivity. Well, and it, for this movie, the murder movie, murder on the train movie murder that we watched, train. I'm Crime I'm glad train. we talked about it. I think it was a good movie to get out there and watch. I felt like it was very dignified and very grown up as I was seeing it with most of, most of the seniors <laughs> for me on Friday. So thanks for chatting with me about it. Tommy Handsome. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you, too. Good night, Andy Nelson. Good night. We'll talk to you uh, when Star Wars rolls around. That's right. Maybe and we should say happy birthday to us again. Happy sixth birthday. Yay. Happy birthday. And thank you to all. twenty-one shows. The only reason Super that we're here is because all of you guys and your support and your listening, we can't thank you enough. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to us on the film board. Go and find us. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter. Join up as a patron on patreon.com slash the next reel. There's cool goodies for big supporters there. If nothing else, consider giving us a rating and a review on iTunes. But tell the filmophiles you know to hang out with us at the next reel because when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Till next. Thank you.
Here on the Film Board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. TheNextReel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to TheNextReel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 